0: Hello and welcome to Extreme Perspectives. This is a monthly podcast created by The Sense Network to bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. This podcast is for people who want to expand their mind and develop their creative intelligence. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. For 20 years, I've been seeking out people from the edges of culture, the creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones people who want to change things, and push the human race forward. In this episode of Extreme Perspectives, I speak with the outlier, graphic artist, martial artist and bull whisperer, Simon Harrison. Simon shares why he chooses to live at the mercy of the world, and why society needs to reclassify success. He shares his experiences with mindfulness, contemplating death, and his authentic take on meditation. Morning, Simon. Welcome to Extreme Perspectives Podcast. How are you today? Morning, Jeremy.
1: I'm all right. I'm good. I don't know if I should be a little bit nervous about being recorded doing this.
0: Never really done this before. Oh, well, I know it's the first time you Zoom the other day as well. So there's a first time for everything, but I think you've got more experience in other areas of life that maybe some people listening today won't have any experience of. So I'm really looking forward to this one. So Simon Harrison, we've known each other quite a long time. However, as you know, I start this podcast by asking the same question every week. Are you an outlier, a misfit, a rebel, or a crazy one?
1: Well, I don't think I'm political enough to be a rebel. I'm really not going to have much interest in uh, in politics generally. I don't think it's a solution to much. Um, So I'm not that misfit, possibly. I think I'm definitely not a crazy one. I think I'm a bit too rational for that, though I do have some out there ideas. So I would say if I was going to place myself in the the strata of society, I would have to put myself as an outlier somewhere way out there, because I don't find many
0: people who share my views. (laughs) (laughs) Very rarely. You're amongst friends here, because I think a lot of a lot of people that I get to speak to do precisely feel that way. But it would be useful for those of us that have joined us today just to understand a little bit about your journey or as much as you're happy to sort of sh- to share, just to paint a bit of a picture of sort of your creative journey. We first met, I think the first conversation we ever had was me looking at some of your artwork.
1: I, I always say that my career started when I was about eight, when I realized that my mum and dad got up every morning, argued, shouted at each other, got really fed up and then went somewhere. They didn't want to go to get paid so that they could earn a living. Um, and I thought, wait, I'm going to school. I don't like going to school and I'm not even getting paid. I'm kind of working for free. And, and that, that kind of set me up because I just thought, well, I'm not doing that when I'm older. And and I that really made that decision right there and then. I was going to make sure that I did what I wanted as much as possible. And it kind of just naturally drove me in the direction of, of art because I was very much into drawing and painting and stuff like that. So uh, it, it was a very natural, uh, almost seamless transition from school to uh, a profession in, uh, in art. Um, I literally walked out of school, started designing record covers and never I never even really gave it a second thought about you know going to college or doing any of that. I just started earning. Uh, And very soon after that, I I, um, decided to, why not get into drawing comics? Because I like doing that. So I just, I went to Forbidden Planet, uh, the comic shop in um, West London. and just showed my portfolio to the guys who were running the shop. I didn't know they were. And they were just like, okay, you need to go to the comics production class at the London College of Communication. Um, It's being run by Gary Leach. And uh, Dave Gibbons was there, the guy who, Uh, Did Watchmen, uh, the the artist and uh, and a co writer on it, I think, especially especially for the recent series that was on HBO. And he met me there, and one thing I do remember is afterwards he said uh, he was surprised by my admirable lack of respect, generally, (laughs) 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 Uh, because I was just I was an arrogant dick, I guess, but in a good way. I wasn't rude. And, uh, you know, I got on with, the, with them, and um, they then pointed me straight at IPC magazines who were publishing 2000AD, the science fiction comic. I went there. I phoned them up uh, with their, on their recommendation. I said, you know, Dave Gibbons and Gary Leach told me to, to ring you, and they were like, come straight down. I, I was there, you know, within the week, showed them my portfolio, and they just went, don't go anywhere else. Um, we want you to work for us. We'll find you some work. And... They did, and I worked for them for quite a number of years. Um, after that, I just, I left the country, I left England, and that's kind of when this become relevant, what we're talking about here, because I had some really uh, powerful, uh, I'll call them spiritual experiences while I was there, that totally changed my outlook towards art generally uh, as a tool, and what was it for, and I realised that... that if it wasn't serving me spiritually, I wasn't interested in it. And as a consequence of that, my interest in, in 2000 AD in the comic genre just kind of evaporated. And I started to work on the art that probably you remember looking at the Dogon stuff, uh, the dark science fiction kind of and uh, iconography that, that I've been um, working on. And that, that, that really served, that really allowed me to express exactly what I was seeing and what I was feeling um it was a very bizarre experience all around um and it really fed into this this whole kind of spiritual journey um that i've, that I've been on really
0: so when you spe- say spiritual journey what were those experiences and 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 how did they come about sort of what was that what was the first step that you took and and then how did it evolve from there
1: the first event that, that happened i would say is a A little too personal to go into in on a on a public podcast but i mean if i give you an example of of one that's that's more kind of more kind of generic um basically what happened was i I found i found that i developed an ability and i don't really know how it happened or why but I developed an ability to put myself in the, into these really deep states of, of relaxation where I, I was seeing the most bizarre things. And sometimes those, those experiences, they were so powerful. I mean, they were life-changing, basically. Uh, a, a, an example would be, at one point, I'll I, I give you an example. I, yeah, I came back from uh, a training session on, on the weekend, um, was very tired, laid down, for, for For a rest suddenly um I open my eyes and the room's full of really bright light, and I remember like no, the light was off, but I didn't turn the light on. what's going on and I stand up and I'm kind of staggering around and I feel like I'm drunk, can't walk properly, and this light is so bright I'm putting my hand out to block it, and I walk up to the light bulb and and the light bulb in the room is is blinding me, and I'm like oh, I'm just going to turn it off so flick the light switch and it nothing happens. Doesn't go on or off. I'm Like, what's going on? And I, this is feels absolutely real, right? The next thing that happens is I just feel like uh, I've been hit by a giant pillow that just blasts me across the room, straight back onto the bed on my back, and I'm laying there like, okay, what the hell's going on? And then suddenly something just starts slamming me against the wall. Now. There's a part of my mind that's saying, this this can't be happening, this isn't real. And there's another part of my mind that says, this feels absolutely real, I don't understand what's going on. At that point, I was lifted up off the bed and I was lit- floating in the middle of the room and I started to see lights flying towards me, like flashing at me. And it felt like something was hitting me, but it wasn't painful. And then something started to coalesce in my field of vision, like a, a, a ball of light with a face in it. And I was like, no, I don't want to see that. Uh, this was all so sudden. The, 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 the amount of shock that, that I felt from it was just so intense that I just was like, I, I, I don't want to handle this. And then the next thing I know, I'm not flying back onto the bed again and, I, and just flung around all over the place. And I eventually I just dug my fingers into my leg to get myself out of it. Right Now, I didn't know what was going on. I went to tell my, my martial arts teacher what, what happened, and he just was like, Hmm. and he went and spoke to the chief instructor and the chief instructor gave him a load of Tibetan scrolls and then he gave them to me and said put these under your bed and I was like why and he said well just to be safe they're they're protection from spirits and I was like well is that what happened I don't know what happened now there are a lot of, of, of things that happened to me that are were similar it's only years later that I figured out what actually was occurring. The, the, the meditation that I use is called Anapanasati. It's the mindfulness of the breath. And what happens is as you, as you get deeper into it, your, uh, your mind starts to shut down its attention to the senses, right? The senses don't stop. They, your mind just stops paying attention to them. And because of that, your mind has a, nothing to look at. Right? So it gets bored. So it it latches onto the only thing that's moving. And the only thing that's moving is the breath. And it turns the breath into an object within it that it plays with. And many times since doing that, doing this, this meditation, I've had this very similar experiences of being thrown around. But what you're feeling is not the you're not being attacked by evil spirits. You're experiencing the movement of the breath, the physical movement gets translated into a mental sensation that feels very real, right? And the light that I was seeing is was called is something that's called a nimitta, which is what happens when your mind starts to become more and more co- cohesive is it starts to form a, a very simple image and that image is a circle of light, okay? And these are all stages in deep meditation. I didn't know that at the time. Right, so I was going through these things with no knowledge of what they were, but they were having a very profound effect on uh, on my behaviour and, and the things that I found interesting or curious in life, and it was leading me away from, I would say, mainstream contemporary way of living. Uh, just lost interest in it because of you know those the the intensity of those events just drew me away, and that's I mean, that's one experience of, of many.
0: If I mean, thanks explains anything I don't know I'm just gonna just gonna fill in a few gaps you mentioned it very briefly when you said you came back from training because you are a very dedicated martial artist yeah as well and there's many different forms it would be great to hear about that just very briefly just to fill that gap in
1: I mean I've it was um just I've been training in a Shaolin Kung Fu something Shaolin Kung Fu style god knows uh, many years now over 30 years and also I got into Wing Chun just because I actually, as a combat style, I really like it. I think it's very, very succinct um, and to the point and effective. You were learning the the Shaolin, the, uh, the Southern Shaolin style from me. And it, interestingly, uh, this is the conversation that I have with Javid, who you know as well, about what effect did the martial arts have on the that kind of, not just the spiritual journey, because I think that's that was kind of... Intrinsic to wanting to learn the Kung Fu, it was all part of it. But what effect did it have on our ability to get into that deep meditation? And we think it had quite a it's quite a strong contributing factor. Because when we really looked at it, and because of the research we've done, we found that we were kind of living an ascetic lifestyle by putting ourselves through a lot of pain on a regular basis as part of the training. You if if you look at the, the core concepts of, of something like Buddhism, it's about learning to deal with suffering without whining about it, essentially. And when you're training in a martial art, you are essentially taking pain without whining about it, if you're doing it properly. Uh, it, I mean, it sounds macho, but it, it that is basically it. And if you look at uh, you know if you, you look at places like india where you see the the ascetics who live in the, the crematoriums and stuff and, and they put they punish themselves all the time they punish their bodies i think they take it way too far personally the concept behind that is the more suffering they can deal with now the less they're going to suffer for it later which is a whole kind of whole their idea of, of karma right? so i mean that's the 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 basic reason why i find that, that a martial art is effective uh,
0: for for this kind of lifestyle, I guess. Well I can certainly having having trained with you for as long as I did, <laughs> I can <laughs> I can certainly vouch for the pain. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I recall about the Sanshin style, it was also referred to as the battle of the mind, the body and the spirit. Yeah, and three fact, ways.
1: Some, some trend means three ways. Three strategies, yeah.
0: And there's a I will I mean a lot of I mean I will maintain this. I think I learned more about strategy learning the forms and going through that whole system than I have done from reading a book. It's it's like it just yeah. enters your your body. It does have a profound effect on you when when you learn those forms. But I think, you know, what you were saying about the you know, that that level of suffering because it wasn't just the the training that we were doing in the sparring meditation was a really important part of yeah. what we were doing at the end of every sparring session we would we would sit down and meditate together i mean partly because we're exhausted and you need to recuperate but that was an incredible time to actually do it because the body had been through a lot of stress and that was just so i just i wanted to fill that gap in because when you say when you came back from training and led on the bed and that happens you know we were properly, properly exhausted.
1: I mean, that was, that, that was in London with my old teacher. So we would, been, we would train, uh, we would get there at 10 o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't leave till 6.30 and you were hammered afterwards. So I was, I, yeah, when I said I was tired, I was exhausted.
0: <laughs> so I wanted to pick up on another point that you, you made because I think this is a really important part of your philosophy as I understand it when you talk about that aesthetic lifestyle it's also this that spiritual lifestyle and just that outlook on life and i mean to try i think i'll try and paraphrase it it's almost i think when i think about how you live your life you've let go of that pursuit of success but that's almost success in itself is letting go of success so i don't want to even try and put it into words i'd love to hear it from you because you've got some really great stories on sort of places you've been and things that have happened
1: this, is all, this all links back to what I was saying when I was in Switzerland, when I started working on purely personal projects and I wasn't earning any money from it and didn't particularly feel concerned about that, although it concerned everybody else. And um, the, 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 the most important thing that I found out was that if you let go of that whole notion of succeeding, and and you know fulfilling your ambitions and stuff, you're kind of left with a void that is quite alien. Um, but but what I noticed was whenever things got really bad, and I was like, I'm I'm proper poor now. I've got nothing. I haven't got enough for food. I haven't got any anything. Something would always come up right at the last second. Um, a, a, a simple example. Um, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm in a in a club, it's daytime, so the club's shut Um, I knew the people who ran it and they they asked me sometimes to do security for them because they knew I was dangerous and that that people would not try and get in so I I was sitting there on a a table and there's only one other person there and it's it's a a guy called John who's like a total stoner, a squatter, right? Penniless, yeah? And I was all sitting there and I'm like I'm absolutely broke right now And I really need to get some shopping. What am I going to do? And I'm sitting there and I look on the floor and I'm not kidding. Right in front of me on the floor is a wad of Swiss francs, right? The equivalent of a thousand pounds, right? And I looked at it and I blinked and I was like, that's really there. Okay. So I picked it up and I went, that would so suit me right now. And I said, but this is not mine. And I said to John, I said, John, I just found this on the floor. It's a lot of money. It's... It must belong to someone. And he looked at me and he went, no, it's not mine. You have it. And I went, are you serious? <laughs> this guy was like, <laughs> he was poorer than I was. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And he just walked away. And I was like, that is nuts. And But that's the kind of thing that happened. It's just like, you know, I'll be, I'll be on my last five quid. I'll look in the, you know, at my account and I'll go, huh, I've got five pounds left. I'm kind of doomed. Whatever. And I'll literally just say, whatever. And then someone will phone me up and say, hey, we've got eight grand, of work worth, of, uh, eight grand worth of work for you. You, you want to do it? And I'll go, yeah. And it will literally be like five minutes after that. And I'm like, so something's going on here. And the more I looked into it, the more I discovered this kind of, there's a universal principle. That's That's basically what this boils down to. And that universal principle is selflessness is the most important thing that a human being can learn about and do, right? Because it benefits everyone, right? Because it's not selfishness, right? And so, the, and, and the universe functions in that way. If you come to a, a river, you can be a murderer or a saint and you can drink out of that river. It doesn't differentiate, right? It doesn't judge you. And so there's that 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 underlying principle that the, that the universe functions uh, under. And it made sense to me that if... I was to live in, in, in accord with that principle, then it must be recognized in some way as the correct way of living. And therefore there must be some way that the, the universe will provide the sustenance I need in order to continue doing it. That kind of made logical sense. And that's what I found has happened. It's like, it's almost as if the, the universe recognizes an ascetic lifestyle as a viable profession, And it will go to any length to make sure you've got enough to survive. And if you look at, like, in in a place like India, if someone decides, oh, I'm going to give up everything and live on the street, even the people who are are just as poor as them will feed them. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like a, it's almost like a a code that's built in that in some way there's a, uh, it's required that. People who decide I'm going to live that way, they get looked after. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the vibe, the, the this whole notion of give up success and you kind of become successful. The more, the more you, in fact, the deeper you get into it, the more things you get, even though you don't want them. And if you look at really famous uh, spiritual leaders, they never want for anything, but they don't need it. And I think it's because the more you do it, you can't, the, the nicer you are to be around. People like you more. They want to be around you. And what's a good way of showing your appreciation? is You look after them. You know? And it's not. I don't think it's a... Some people might think, oh, well, that kind of sounds parasitical. And it could be if, you, if the person was cynical as well as ascetic, right? But... What I found is that more and more people. I don't. Please don't think I'm being big-headed. This is just what I've seen. I've noticed more and more people are saying that they find my presence or my influence on their lives extremely positive. Right? I've had that from my stepdaughter, from my godson, from his sister, from um, my work partner, from her husband. You know, people are really important to me, and they they say like you've really had a positive influence on our lives. And I'm like, well, that's good. Um, and even strangers have said it. So you contribute, you give back, you know, that's basically what I'm saying. Uh, you give back something that's not money. Uh, and I think that that's kind of something that kind of annoys me a bit about the way society is based. It's like, if it's not money, it's not worth anything. And that's crap because I know people who've got plenty of money and, uh, it doesn't make you happy what makes you happy is uh still contentment uh a, a feeling of, of integrity if
0: you haven't got that it doesn't matter what you've got materially the, the other thing that we've seen over the last decade is a is a rise of mindfulness and this and meditation and and that and having had the experiences that I've had and some of those experiences with you, sometimes that whole pursuit of mindfulness, it feels like a currency as well where people are trying to be more mindful. It has almost become competitive and it's like... Yeah, it's not, it's not mindfulness. It's just, it's just more ambition. And this is the
1: interesting thing. If you ask people, what is mindfulness? What actually is it? they will You will probably get, 99% of the time, you will get an answer... Uh, it's being really focused on what you're doing, it's um, staying with the moment, it's this, it's that. And all they're talking about really is trying, right? It's effort. What they're talking about is is making an effort, concentration. This is not mindfulness. It's nothing to do with mindfulness, it's this complete opposite of mindfulness. If you think about the, the fact that people approach mindfulness because they want to get away from the, the their problems and that their problems are a consequence of their their acquisitiveness and their need for material sustenance and and, and, and to f- the fulfilment of their ambition, right? So that's all. All their problems are a, a consequence of trying, and then they go to mindfulness, a, a mindfulness system that is more of the same, more trying, more effort, more concentration. It's totally wrong. Mindfulness is, if you were going to give it a, another word, it would be choiceless awareness. Now, if you were going to ask me, like, well, what's that? Well, consider this. Your body is what is doing your mindfulness. You can't do mindfulness. No one can do mindfulness. Your body does your mindfulness for you, right? It collects information almost all the time, even when you're sleeping, right? And assimilates that information, right? And all of that happens way before any influence from the conscious mind can get to it, right? Now, if you consider that it is the conscious mind that's causing the problem. If you take a step back away from that, away from that conscious mind, you come into that. Remember I was um, talking to you uh, a long time ago about proprioception, remember that? Proprioception, the the body's ability to know where it is and what it's doing uh, in space at any given time. You know right now, immediately, that you are sitting down, right? You know that you've moved your head. You, it's, they're not decisions that you make. You don't say, I'm going to move my head now. I'm going to move my arm. Your body just does it, right? And it knows it's done it, right? So if you closed your eyes and, and I moved one of your limbs, you'd know where it was. And that's your proprioception. Now imagine that mindfulness is an extension of your proprioceptive senses into the domain of thought. So you become acutely aware of what your mind is doing, and so you're not a victim of it anymore. So your awareness is really all it is is a, a changing attitude to the hierarchy of your awareness, right? Because your the hierarchy of your awareness usually for most people it is completely the wrong way around. The assumption is that your, your conscious verbal thought is what happens first and that it controls everything that your body does. No, your body decides whether you're going to be have a good feeling in you or a bad feeling in you and you can only recognize that fact after you've seen it because you wouldn't know you were in a bad mood unless something happened first for you to then recognize a label right so everything that you do and this is really peculiar everything you do every decision you make comes first from your body and then filters down into your if you want ego your your constructed mind that's a, 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 an outcome of stored information and then that tries to influence what's already happened which is absolutely stupid right, so what if you like med, uh, meditation on mindfulness is the recognition of that incorrect order, seeing the futility of trying to change what's already happened and then just stopping doing it it's like why should I do that, why would I struggle to influence what has already occurred when I can't, that's like someone punches you in the face and you go, oh, right, what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna apply my uh, verbal thought to stop that from happening. Uh, tough, It's already happened. you've already been clumped, right? So all you've gotta do now is deal with the pain, right? And that all goes in the wrong direction as well because then the, the mind get, jumps on that and says, I wish this wasn't happening. Well, it's already happening, deal with it. Then the only way to deal with it is to endure it until it goes away. Um, so if, if, if I was going to say anything to, to people about like learning meditation or anything like that, would be: it is just literally about getting the right order within the hierarchy of your awareness, becoming aware of it, and just don't deviate from it. Or when you do, be aware of the fact that you have. Essentially, that boils down to being aware of your motives for everything you're doing.
0: So I was going to ask you about that motivation. What would be a good motivation for meditation? How should you do it? Do you need to sit still? You know, what is the the right way? Because we read so much stuff around. You know, you need to sit this way and you need to do that. What's your view? Posture
1: is it's not essential to meditation. If you if you, if that was true, then the moment you stood up off of your meditation cushion or your chair or your bed or wherever you were doing it all the effort that you put into the, the, the meditation would go out the window, wouldn't it? Because you're now walking around in the wrong posture. So you can't meditate, which is crap, right? The 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 idea behind meditation is it should pervade your life. It should be be present all the time. That That's the pinnacle of it, to be mindful all the time. And that means that you can meditate when you're walking around, when you're cooking something, when you're chopping vegetables, when you're working, whenever, yeah? That that's that's logical. So posture not important. But what I would say is, someone who was beginning, there's nothing wrong with sitting down in a comfortable uh, posture. You can you can meditate laying down, but the difficulty is that you there's is, uh, is a, a tendency to fall asleep, right? So you need to get yourself in a posture that's comfortable for you. It could be on a chair, it could be you know cross legged, whatever you want. Um, and then the the principle is is simple. Uh, Your mind is designed to um, ignore things that don't change, right? That's just how the brain works. Um, So when you close your eyes, although you haven't stopped seeing, you're just seeing the backs of your eyelids, right? There's nothing happening. It's just dark, right? So your brain just goes, I'm just going to ignore that now. And if you do meditation in in a proper environment, it should be quiet so there's not a lot of noise. So your brain sort of says, Oh, I'm just going to ignore, ignore the, the external sounds. Um, your sense of of smell and taste shouldn't be disturbed because you know you wouldn't be you wouldn't have cooking smells where you were meditating with, usually, um, and your sense of touch because you're sitting still that kind of just get gets ignored. So then what happens is because your your attention towards your senses is dormant, the only thing your mind can do is watch what it's doing. Okay. Um, so you could become mindful of your thoughts. Um, mostly, though, what your mind will do is it will latch onto the only thing that's moving, and that's your heartbeat, your pulse, or your breathing. Right now, there's a tendency for the breathing and uh, for the heart rate and the pulse to be a bit disturbing uh, because they get they start to remind people of their mortality a bit too uh, too much. You know, you, you feel your heart beating, and you're like, oh wow, you know that what if that stopped you know, but breathing is a bit more neutral. And um, when your mind latches onto that, it will just watch it. And as it gets deeper into its attention on the breathing, it will turn your, your breathing into a mind object. And that's what I was describing at the beginning when I was flung around a rib. What was happening was because I was agitated in my mind about what was happening, my breathing was irregular, but my mind was so fixated on, on the breathing it translated the irregular erratic breathing into a, a, a physical movement that I felt as my body being th- thrown around and bounced against the wall. But obviously, when you're in a, a, a deep state of relaxation, if you don't get agitated, the, the breathing becomes, I can only describe it as a very beautiful thing to watch. Um, it, is, it is very fulfilling, very beautiful. And the deeper you get into that, the more cohesive your mind becomes. And as your mind becomes more cohesive, these dreamscapes and stuff that you're you're normally seeing in your mind when you've got your eyes closed, like when you're dreaming or if you're fantasizing, what you're looking at is what your mind is playing with, what your mind's doing, right? So imagine that you get into a, a state where that becomes more cohesive. There's less detail, right? So you could describe uh, mindfulness as a reduction in psychological detail to the point where you're left with probably just two details: a background and a bright light. And that bright light is a classic nimitta, right? A sign of the mind. And what you've got to do then, well, you you don't really do any of this. This kind of happens automatically if you get into the right state. And what will happen is that nimitta will decide whether it's going to sit there stably, whether it's going to disappear, or whether it's going to just rush you, right? And if it rushes you, that is taking you into... Probably the, the deepest states of meditation you can get into. Those are the what are called the jhanas, right? By the, the Buddhists. So uh, the, uh, the a Definition of a jhana is it's a perfect seclusion from the onslaught of your senses, right? So you're you are totally isolated within your body, um, uh, and and totally in your mind, in a in a in a completely mental state. Uh, and these things are not. They are not trivial. They are not trivial states. They they change your life. They cannot but change your life. If you consider them as positive trauma, that would really be an understatement because if you imagine you were to walk out of here now and be in the most hideous car smash but get away from it and live, right? That's going to be in your mind and, uh, and it's going to repeat in your mind for probably the rest of your life one way or the other, right? Now imagine something the complete opposite of that. It's it's so powerful that it grips you for the rest of your life and it won't let you deviate from its significance. And its significance is that, generally speaking, human society and human life is complete crap and it's wrong and there's another way of doing things. That's basically what it tells you. So this is
0: a conversation we've had, is the importance of death.
1: Yeah, the one that I do is called Anapanasati, the mindfulness of the breath. There's The, the death meditation is Mara Anasati. And it was the first one that Buddha taught to, the, to his monks. And then he went away on a trip. And while he was away, the monks became so obsessed with death and the, and the disgustingness of their bodies. And, and and they combined it with a suba practice. A suba is uh, the contemplation of decay and, and the, the death of the body. And because of that, they became so distraught with their own bodies that they asked a local madman to murder them. <laughs> and uh, which he kind of obliged after. They they had to persuade him. He didn't want to do it. They had to persuade him. And so he started murdering them and uh, and went, went on the rampage. And when Buddha got back, he was like, where is everyone? And they were like, oh, they're, they're dead. And he said, what happened? And they, they explained. And he was like, oh, right. You're not ready for that kind of meditation. So he taught them, Anapanasati instead, which is a step back, which is still a contemplation of your mortality, but it's way more gentle, right? Because you're watching your breath and you have to acknowledge that at some point that's going to stop and you will die. It's inevitable, right? Um, But it's not a full-on contemplation of death. So you're you're somewhat removed from the the sharpness of uh, of that death contemplation. And it if you think about it, if you if you really accepted the fact that any moment, and this is absolutely true, any moment, you could die. We could die. One of us could die during this conversation, right? It's happened. Somewhere in the world, someone has dropped dead in the middle of a conversation, right? There's no rule that says that we are going to live past the next breath. And if you, you really accept that, then how can that not change your view of... of sort of trivialities that human beings generally get involved in. How can you have an argument with your loved one knowing that it might be the last time you see them? You put it right immediately, don't you? If you've got any sense. How could you tolerate a a lifestyle that you can't stand or a job you can't stand when you realize, I could die doing this? Would you do it? Would you tolerate it? No, you wouldn't. You'd be like, I'm done here. You just walk out, right? So you're it, it it changes your 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 attitude to everything. The only problem with it, with death com- contemplation, is if you're not if you're not very stable and very well restrained. Pretty much, if you if you're not a monastic, it will drive you nuts.
0: Is this a point where I confess to having done it for thirty days, thirty consecutive days? I I did it, so I I survived that, and I think I I came out of it having done that. Actually not wanting to change a thing, and I think you know having friends like you is is helpful because there's other people yeah. <laughs> on similar journeys, yeah, but you were always
1: doing what you wanted to do, weren't you? you weren't taking exactly it you you just were like, well, yeah, exactly what I'm saying. It's like if your life's not in order, that kind of contemplation will utterly change you if you if your life is in order, it will just make you want to do more of what you're doing.
0: That's consistent, I would say it is, and I think you know, to sort of close the loop on, on, on some of this other experiences I've had. And when I, I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the first conversations we ever had was around some of this artwork, which, as you said, is very dark, you know, very dark backgrounds with, with figures in the foreground. And I saw that artwork, and I recognised it. And I, you know and i told you that i'd been there as well yeah. and it it was a familiar landscape and setting but not not anything that we would know and that you know and, and a lot of that the last time i got that was from uh i'd actually been fasting for a couple of days before i did a yoga nidra and that was a guided meditation and it was one of i mean i did it with about 20 other people and i think i was the only person that that got to that that place as well where you know you, that light is there and it's just the most profound experience and, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's incredibly enriching thing when it happens so I think that's the yeah and that for me is you know when you have those common experiences and you can talk about them you sort of go yeah you know there's a there's a lot of other things going on here incredibly powerful things that we've sort of lost touch with and and I think doing it you know and it's like you know what kind of what brand of meditation are you buying right now? is maybe a yeah. question that you want to ask yourself. Yeah, you know, definitely. I had a conversation with someone on the weekend. they're sort of there's this whole tourist thing now around taking things like ayahuasca or DMT. there's all you know and we're seeing a rise in psychedelics. All these things that are maybe helpful in opening windows for people or the doors of perception is um does Huxley would put it but you know there are very natural ways of getting there too and i think that's you know i think that's one of the, and that's certainly something that i know that you've done because if anyone's under any illusion i can vouch for simon he does not take drugs and he does not drink so this is this is an entirely pure and natural journey that you've been on
1: it's uh yeah it's interesting that the the, the rise in in psychedelics and stuff i think it's if it if it makes people more open minded, whatever. I mean, I'm not puritanical about my my uh, lack of participation in, in in drugs and stimulants and stuff like that. It's just you know what other people do is their business. I just know that I've I've not found it necessary, um, and you know the, the, to have that proper clarity. I, I don't want it to be clouded by by a substance. So, um, I mean. Going back to your, your what you were saying about the the, the nidra and the profundity of the, of these events when they occur, I mean that that is something that you can't buy it, and you've got you've 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 got to get this into your head that there is a difference between meditation and stress management, right? And a lot of what's peddled nowadays as meditation is stress management. And there's nothing wrong with stress management, right? Because it can improve your way of life and your quality of life and you know your interactions with people and et cetera, etc etc. But unless you order the hierarchy of your awareness properly, what you're involved in is really just mitigating some of the worst aspects of egotism on a on a daily basis but you're really still only dealing with the symptoms of the root of the problem and the root of the problem is the wrong order of of awareness basically putting yourself first instead of your body is like putting yourself first instead of the world that created you it's the same principle it's going against the universal principle we are here because the universe has created the conditions to allow us to be, not the other way around. So we are in no position to place ourselves first. And if you do place yourself first, the inevitable outcome is conflict and destruction. And you just have to look at the world to see if that is the case, right? And you just have to look at the, you know, a a, a correctly run monastic uh, um, community to see how they don't destroy their environment because they're living with their minds in the right order. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should become a monk or a nun. I'm not saying that I'm not going to become a monk or a nun. I'm not going to become a nun. <laughs> but I have no, no interest in, in becoming a monastic. But it is plainly obvious, if, if someone looks into this properly, that that is the key. The key factor is getting your mind in the right order. Right. That's the, the whole notion behind the, that term samadhi it means composure samadhi is this everyone assumes samadhi is you know wonderful experiences of, of of you know and transcendentalism and and seeing god and all that that might happen it might not doesn't have to right the the important aspect of samadhi is the composure that you get or the orderliness of your mind that then allows you to approach suffering correctly right? Because suffering is inevitable. You can't stop it. It's going to come no matter how much of a lovely life you're having. There will come a point where someone you know gets sick or they die or they have an accident or it happens to you. It's just life. You've got a body. As soon as you're born, you're old enough to die, right? That's just the truth. And you've got no way of predicting when that will happen. All you can do is set conditions so you can maybe slow it down. Like, don't sit on the couch and stuff your face with corn dogs because you'll have a heart attack early. So do some exercise, live a healthy life. You might live longer. You might live longer. There's no guarantee, right? So it's all, you see how that's all linked together, right? And that's a bit of a harsh way of looking at things, but it is true.
0: Well, it's, it's, as you say, it's universal principles and it's first principles and it's getting back to that and it's knowing what's what and not getting wrapped up in stuff mm. too much. I think- yeah um i think composure and posture and how you turn up is is so important and you know one of our values is just minding the energy it's just kind of you know you might have a lot of shit going on and it's kind of like if you have great tell us about it get it out of the way don't let it get in the way uh, and one of the things uh, well it is it's Alan Watts said this about meditation he refers to it as medication rather than meditation it's when to use it you don't need it every day um it's you know it's one of those things that you can you can use it as you say to, to to get things in the right order and to get things into um and that's coming from someone who did do it every day and has clocked up a lot of hours of doing it year in year out every day boom and then getting to a point going i don't actually need to do this anymore i've You know, it's how you live.
1: Yeah. What I would say is, if if that's the case, then he's probably in a state of meditation anyway. Exactly. Because he's not freaking out about what's going on around him, and that's the that's basically the, the the whole point in this. You you start simply like you don't you don't run before you can walk, right? So if you're gonna if you're gonna learn meditation, you learn it sitting down, and then at some point. You, you do walking meditation, and then you start to see that it can spread, it can, it can pervade your, your daily activities without you dropping the, the ball, as it were, which is a really peculiar feeling. But the the, the sense of, of uh, the kind of relief you get from it. You know, a funny story happened to me recently. Walking through a field in Sussex, 5 in the morning, right. I come into the field. I, I've opened the gate. I shut the gate. Stepped into the field and, and there's like a herd of bulls in the field, right? And they, they completely panicked because they didn't see me and I didn't see them. And they ran. And, and it was a bit of a shock, you know, because they, they, were, they were young, but they were big, right? And so I'm like, well, I'm just going to, they run away. I'm going to just carry on through this field. So I'm walking through this field. And I hear this galloping noise behind me and I turn around. And this herd of bulls is going to run me down. They're charging me. And I just turned around and I had, I'm i not kidding, I had no thought of running, right? It was really peculiar. I just pointed straight at the lead ball at the middle of his forehead and he just screeched to a halt like about two inches from my thing, and just stared at me. And then all his gang behind him was just standing there. And I, I just stood there and I was like, okay, I'm in a bit of a weird position here because if I was going to run, I should have done it. But now <laughs> I didn't run because I didn't feel like it. This is odd. Why? I don't feel nervous. What's going on? And and it was like this gang mentality that it's like the, the lead ball's standing there and all his mates are going, give, get him, get him, Gary, go on, get him. And and the, <laughs> he's going and he's going, no, no, it's weird, man. He's psyching me out. I don't understand what's going on. It was really like that. It was it was actually comical. And I held this ball for two minutes, right, just pointing at him. And I didn't let him move. And 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 then I just sort of went, once I realised he was calm enough. I leant down and I picked him a handful of grass and I held it out to him and he looked at me and he looked at the grass and he looked at me and he started drooling, but he wouldn't eat it. (laughs) And then I just sort of went, all right, here you go. And I dropped it in front of him and he just stood there looking at me and then I just sort of went, all right, bye. And I didn't back away, I just turned around and I walked off. They didn't follow me, right? I got out of that field. I had another 100 meters to walk, right? And I got out of that field and I was like, that is really weird, that is not a normal reaction for being charged by a herd of bulls. It's not the first time that's happened and in properly stressful situations, I told you about the, the train, I, it was similar. I, I, I stopped that guy and I did not feel animosity towards him. I didn't feel nervous, afraid, angry, nothing. It was just like, just deal with it. And then afterwards I'm like, that was odd. And anyone who asks me about it, I describe it to them, and they go, "That is really weird." And I've got to admit, it is. And I think that that's the effect that these this meditation
0: should have on you. It should it should make you you should just feel calm. I think it makes you calm, and it and it actually that's the that's the most profound thing I, I've said before. There are things that you can learn from a book, and there are things that you just learn from practice. And somehow it just sort of sublimates. It just enters your whole system. And knowing how to react, and sometimes I say, you know, when I talk about mind and the energy, sometimes it's just about breathe through things. Just keep the breathing going. Just breathing through mm. things sometimes. But I can't better that story, and I think that's a really good place to leave it, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great story. All sorts of images were being conjured up in my head. I was going to see almost like a Gandalf-like figure holding out his <laughs> h- holding, holding out his hey, finger it wasn't and just quite stopping.
1: So I was, I was soaking wet from walking around in the rain.
0: Now, I often ask this question at the end, in terms of your work and what you're doing, is there anything that the Sense Network can do to help you on your journey or things that you're doing or things that you'd want to share? Well, i tell you what,
1: the only thing that, I, that I've really got that hasn't been addressed and I would like it to get, move, move on with it somehow, is the, the, the artwork that you were looking at that we were talking about before, that the, the Dogon project. Um, I just put it out on Instagram um, because I, mean, I just was like, well, I've got all this artwork. What am I going to do with it? And I was just like, and I and I just don't feel motivated enough, on and I'm not organised enough to look for a publisher, right? So, if there's anyone on that on your sense network who might know a publisher that would be interested in that, that would be something that I'd be interested in. If they wanted to go and look at it. Uh, they'd have to go to instagram it's dogon.a.i 135 and i've let, I've made it a private account so they would have to somehow message me and and let me know that they came through you and then i would let them in and they
0: can have a look maybe one thing we could do is uh set up a, a meetup and then ask me anything and we could get an hour online with the network and you could share some of your work and get some perspective on that yeah yeah
1: it's a it's a project that is very relevant to what we've been discussing because all of the images came out of those processes and also the there was a lot of information that that i painted i mean i was i was i was writing berber arabic uh, symbols on things I, i i don't know berber arabic Right, so where was it coming from? There were Japanese characters in there. That I, I, I don't know Japanese either, and and certain symbolism that was just I don't know where it came from. And the only thing I can say that it came from the collective, and that's where you go when you do these these deeper meditations. You go to the collective. That light that I was talking about, that nimitta, the one thing that I realized the first time I saw one was it's not mine. It it's, it doesn't belong to my mind. That is what I'm looking at now. That's everyone, which is a really peculiar feeling, and that's why it affects you so strongly. It's incredibly powerful. That term "force of nature" didn't really mean anything to me until I saw that one of those things. And I, and the word "awesome" it's overused. Wait till you see one of those, and then you'll know what awesome is. Like, you will. It'll, it'll put the shits up you big time. That's a, that's a proper powerful thing. It's like, it's like staring at a tornado that's looking back at you. Awesome. <laughs>
0: You're welcome. Thank you. Isn't Thank you for listening to Extreme Perspectives brought to you by Sense Worldwide. We'd love you to join this conversation using the hashtag #ExtremePerspectives. Perspectives. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. The Sense Network collaborates with many of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Join us at thesensenetwork.com or get in touch via email hello at senseworldwide.com.